We have gathered here in Princeton to serve the course of the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. The university was founded long before the establishment of the independent state of Israel. This institution of research and scholarship represents a spiritual bond encompassing the Jews in all countries. There were a lot of scientists amongst the early leaders of Zionism, and that voice belongs to probably the most famous one of all, Albert Einstein, talking about a project close to his heart. On April 1st, 1925, atop Mount Scopus in Jerusalem, overlooking the old city in one direction and the Judean desert in another, several thousand people gathered to officially open the Hebrew University campus. Its creation was the result of passionate support from the global Jewish community, including some of its most notable names in many different countries. My birthday buddy, Chaim Weizmann, Albert Einstein, Sigmund Freud, Martin Buber, and many others. Two years earlier, during a visit to the Holy Land before the actual campus was built, Einstein had delivered the very first scientific lecture at the school. On the theory of relativity, of course. Weizmann, Einstein, and the university's leaders wanted to build a top-rate international scientific research institute. They wanted the school to develop expertise and world-renowned leaders in agriculture, medicine, new technology, and security. Then later it would admit students and offer degrees. The university's first chancellor was Judah Magnus, the controversial pacifist American reform rabbi from the Bay Area. He was born in San Francisco and grew up in Oakland. Judah Magnus was a Zionist, but he didn't support the idea of linking Judaism and nationalism. He didn't think the future Jewish state should be, well, Jewish. That would suggest he thought that Jews living outside the Jewish homeland were somehow less than, which he totally rejected. And it was also because he believed that the future Jewish state should be a binational democratic state for both Jews and Arabs. He was determined to use the university to promote equal rights and relations between Jews and Arabs. Einstein hated him. He referred to Judah Magnus as that failed American rabbi and a weak and inferior dilettante. It's hard to imagine Albert Einstein hating anything except, I don't know, black holes. But there you go. Not even Nobel Prize winners are immune from Zionist politics. Actually, their feud was more personal than political, but it's a really long story. They had similar perspectives on Zionism. Einstein also wasn't big on the nationalist element of Zionism. He once said that he hoped the Jewish homeland would end up having no borders, no army, and no official government power, lest those things corrupt Judaism and the Jews. He also supported a binational state for both Jews and Arabs, and not the creation of a specifically Jewish state. However, he also understood the necessity of Zionism, as he would later say both before and after Hitler. I made the cause of Zionism mine, he said, because through it I saw a means of correcting a flagrant wrong. That wrong, he said, was the centuries of victimization and discrimination that the Jews had suffered. And he later said, I'm glad that there should be a little patch of earth on which our kindred brethren are not considered aliens. Einstein remained a leading supporter of the university until his death in 1955. He willed his personal archives and the rights to his works to Hebrew U. So if you're looking for that original scrap of paper with the formula E equals MC squared on it, you will find it in Jerusalem. Welcome back to Jew Ought to Know.
I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. At the risk of going off topic for a second, let me just say that the more time I spend with my birthright participants, the more they collectively remind me of Einstein. Not because they're geniuses. Way too many misplaced passport stories. But because in the aggregate, their opinions about Judaism and Israel are very much aligned with his. Einstein strongly identified as Jewish and called his relationship with other Jews his strongest human bond. But he wasn't religious, didn't believe in God. He was what we would today call culturally Jewish. On Israel, Einstein was a Zionist, insisting on a clear historical and moral case for the Jewish people to have a home in their native land. And he was also skeptical about the Jewish people having a state with borders, an army, and a government, the trappings of nationalism that he worried would detract from Judaism's essential nature. He advocated instead for Jewish-Arab cooperation, peace, and a shared society, and yet he was a prolific fundraiser for the Zionist movement, and when Israel was created in 1948, one of its most distinguished advocates. And so as the Jewish community looks for Zionist role models today who aren't too ideological for this generation's skepticism and universalism, I think we could do a lot worse than Einstein. He embraced the nuances of Judaism and Zionism in a way that perhaps only a scientist best can. Having multi-dimensional ideas, theories really, and an openness to idealistic perspectives that were also grounded in reality. Sure, he was against the idea of a Jewish state, but when a Jewish state happened anyway, he threw his support behind it while continuing to advocate for peace and cooperation with the Arabs. He provides, I think, a way to stand for the moral cause of Zionism, while also pushing back against the practices of state power which we may or may not disagree with. In other words, you can be a Zionist while also criticizing the Israeli government. Einstein's internal conflict between Zionism and state power came to a head in 1952, when David Ben-Gurion offered him the presidency of Israel. Einstein begged off, saying essentially that although he was ashamed at having to refuse such an honor, he was not enough of a people person to do the job. Which was reportedly just fine with Ben-Gurion. Apparently he never liked Einstein anyway. Speaking of Ben-Gurion, let's get back to our story. So Hebrew University was just one of the many Zionist institutions built or developed in Palestine during the 1920s, which would profoundly impact the future state of Israel. It was also a decade in which the movement was cultivating new leaders. We talked last week about the rising influence of Vladimir Jabotinsky and his militant branch of the Zionist tree, Revisionist Zionism, which stood opposed to the labor Zionists. And although my birthday buddy Chaim Weitzman was the leader of the Zionist movement at this time, Another Zionist was fast emerging as the movement's powerhouse. David Ben-Gurion, born in 1886, came from the Russian part of Poland, and unlike other Zionist leaders, he was a second-generation Zionist. His mother died when he was young, but his father was active in the movement, and he ensured that Ben-Gurion from an early age hit all the Zionist checkboxes. Youth movements, advocacy for Jewish workers, immigration to Palestine, and perhaps most important, a love for the promised land. Ben-Gurion credited this love for the Jewish homeland, not anti-Semitism, as the driving force behind his decision to emigrate. He denied ever having experienced persecution and said that he and those from his city came to Palestine not to escape, but to rebuild. He was an almost pure idealist. He later wrote about his arrival in Palestine, We were all lively, bold, and unspoiled, full of enthusiasm, carefree, and full of joy. 
We felt rejuvenated, reborn, having left the small, dirty alleyways far, far behind us to live among gardens and orchards. Here everything was different, nature, life and work, even the trees. No more books and squeezing the benches and empty mental gymnastics. We work. We not only work, we conquer. The soil and life. Still, he was realistic about the hardships that Palestine presented, and he was deeply influenced by an act of violence that he had witnessed up north during Passover in 1909. A couple of local Jews had killed an Arab who attacked them, and the Arabs responded by attacking the settlement and killing two Jews. It foreshadowed the kind of violence that would erupt in 1920, and it left Ben-Gurion feeling certain that those two Jews had fallen, he said, with a single hope working for a single goal. He connected their lives as Jews directly to Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel, the land that he wrote is precious and hallowed. In the first couple decades of the 1900s, Ben-Gurion bounced all over the map. He was a farm worker on the kibbutzim around the Sea of Galilee. He became active in Hashomer, the watchman, the newly formed Jewish self-defense group in Palestine. Then he went to Greece, and then he went to study at Istanbul University, alongside a couple other future Zionist leaders. Then back to Palestine for the outbreak of World War I, then deported to Egypt, and then went to New York in 1915, where he campaigned to raise funds for the Zionist project. Oddly enough, the campaign was in support of the Ottoman Empire, not the Allies, even though the Turks were the ones that deported him. But he still wanted them to win, in the hopes that if the Jews helped them, they would be amenable to the creation of a Jewish homeland. But in any case, the American audience was very skeptical. They were focused on their own Jewish communities and didn't want this beggar from Palestine stealing away their Jews. The future Prime Minister of Israel had trouble getting speaking gigs, and when he did, he usually couldn't fill the room. It was on this tour in the United States that he met a Russian-American woman, Paula Munweiss. She was a remarkable woman, he later said about her. He went on, she was not a Zionist, she had very little Jewish feeling, she was an anarchist, she had no interest in Israel. He quoted her as saying, America is better, why do we need the land of Israel? But Ben-Gurion not only convinced her why a Jewish homeland was important, but told her that if they ever got married, she would have to move there. And she agreed. They married a couple years later, and Paula Ben-Gurion remained his closest confidant for the rest of her life. And fate to the benefit of Israeli history, brought him another auspicious meeting during that American tour. At his final stop in Milwaukee in 1916, he met another Russian-American woman and a prolific Zionist fundraiser. Her name was Goldie Mabovich. After Israel was established, Ben-Gurion would later call her the best man in government, and she would become the first, and so far only, female Israeli prime minister. By then she had changed her name, of course, to Golda Meir. When Britain issued the Balfour Declaration in 1917, Ben-Gurion switched sides. He joined the Jewish Legion to fight against the Ottomans, after which he and Paula settled in Palestine and he began his career as a Zionist leader. He was around 30 years old at this point. Where Chaim Weizmann was the diplomat and Vladimir Jabotinsky the agitator and Arthur Rupin the builder, David Ben-Gurion was the political activist. He jumped from one leadership position to another in the labor Zionist tree branch, eventually landing in the early 1920s as the leader of the Jewish trade union in Palestine, which was called the Histadrut. The Histadrut was the workers' union, but Ben-Gurion made it more than that. 
He turned it into the central institution of the Yishuv, what we call the Jewish community in Palestine before Israel. It began in 1920 as a pretty standard union with the goal of improving the lives of workers, and it soon took over a wide range of companies such that it became the single largest employer in the Yishuv. If you were a worker of any kind in Palestine, you were probably in the Histadrut, and it would remain so for decades, even after the establishment of the State of Israel. But Ben-Gurion wanted more than that. He wanted to use the power and the reach of the Histadrut to advance the goals of Zionism, which according to him was Jewish immigration into Palestine. A Zionist movement of workers, he declared, was necessary to fulfill the Zionist dream, to make the land productive, to make the economy prosperous, and so to create the conditions for a Jewish national home to flourish. All the Yishuv's resources, he insisted, should be dedicated towards this effort. And he made the moves to central resources within the Histadrut, and so under his leadership. But it wasn't just economics. Making immigrants successful in Palestine was a moral imperative, according to Ben-Gurion, and the moral philosophy underpinning all this was socialism. David Ben-Gurion was solidly sitting on the labor Zionist tree branch, at this point, he was its leader. Hebrew labor on Hebrew soil, he liked to say. This reflected what the historian Paul Johnson says were his three constant principles. That Jews should make it their priority to return to Eretz Israel, the land of Israel. That this community of Jews in Palestine should be built on a socialist framework. And that the cultural binding of Zionist society must be the Hebrew language. Ben-Gurion held to these principles his whole life. Through war and peace and declaring Israel's independence and serving as prime minister and traveling the globe to meet with world leaders, Ben-Gurion never lost sight of his socialist ideology and idealism about working the land. He would spend the last years of his life living on a small kibbutz in the Negev desert, Steboker. Then it was in the middle of nowhere, and today it's a frequent stop on birthright trips. Remember how a few episodes ago I told you that Jewish immigration was going to be like the dominant theme in Israeli history for probably the rest of this podcast? Well, it was definitely true in the 1920s. Even though the leaders of the Zionist movement were in agreement about the importance of Jewish immigration to the present and the future of the Jewish homeland, they differed on how to go about it. We saw last week how Jabotinsky was at such loggerheads with my birthday buddy Chaim Weitzman that he broke off from the mainstream Zionist movement to form his own tree branch, Revisionist Zionism, the more militant and right-wing faction of the movement. Weitzman counseled patience and gradualism in all things. He believed in working with the British to slowly bring in Jews while first creating the kinds of efficient and elite organizations that would, over time, make the Jewish homeland into a world leader across multiple industries, hence the creation of institutions like Hebrew University. Jabotinsky and his revisionist movement wanted massive Jewish immigration, right now. Bring as many Jews to Palestine as possible, arm them to defend themselves, create that iron wall to force the Arabs to accept the Jewish homeland, and turn that homeland into a political nation-state. He and Weitzman didn't much get along, but on the political spectrum, Weitzman was something of a centrist. So Jabotinsky's real nemesis was David Ben-Gurion. Ben-Gurion, of course, wanted immigration, but he was more focused on building the socialist framework of Zionism. Less important to him than bringing as many Jews to Palestine right now was to first make sure that they would be plugged into a socialist system when they arrived. As one Histadrut official said, 
Our job is not to divide the cake equally, but first of all to see that there's a cake to divide. Ben-Gurion and Jabotinsky hated each other in the way that highly partisan left and right-wing ideologues tend to hate each other all over the world. In 1933, Ben-Gurion would even refer to Jabotinsky as Vladimir Hitler. In the end, Ben-Gurion would win, he established Israel, he became its first prime minister, and he installed left-wing's labor Zionism as the dominant political force in Israel for most of its 70 years. And Jabotinsky lost, in the sense that, well, he died before any of this happened. But just look at Israel today to see that Jabotinsky and Ben-Gurion are still fighting it out. I think it's safe to argue that Jabotinsky's right-wing heirs are the ones now in power. But in any case, Weizmann, Jabotinsky, and Ben-Gurion, they shouldn't have worried so much about Jewish immigration, because in the 1920s it wasn't going so well. Palestine's Jewish population was moving up in significant numbers. In 1920, there were probably between 70 to 80,000 Jews in Palestine, by the middle of the decade, that number would be over 100,000, and by the end of the 1920s, more than 150,000. Exact numbers are hard to come by. I've seen a wide range of statistics. And yet, Jewish immigration to Palestine was fairly slow. The Roaring Twenties in the interwar years saw economic prosperity and more liberal social and cultural norms across the Western world. This included the Jews, even in Eastern Europe, though of course, anti-Semitism and discrimination remained powerful norms everywhere. But still... The Jews were better off enough so that they were less interested in moving to Palestine, where life was still pretty rough. And even of those who did, many left, usually to the United States. Some years in the 1920s saw net migration out of Palestine, rather than in. All these immigrants were part of two waves that made important contributions to the future state of Israel. They became known as the Third and Fourth Aliyah. The Third Aliyah immigrants came immediately after the war, and mostly from Eastern Europe especially Russia. Under the communist revolution, Zionism was regarded with suspicion and contempt, and anti-Semitism remained rampant. The social revolution that the communists promised the Russian people wasn't happening for the Jews. But it was in Palestine, so around 40,000 joined the Yishuv in the post-war years. These third Aliyah immigrants were different from their predecessors. The first and second Aliyah immigrants came to Palestine to learn farming and become workers, to build a utopian Jewish society. As we've seen, that never really worked out. It was too hard for them and most left. So the Zionists got smart. And led by Joseph Trumpledor, they set up training programs all over Russia to train local Jews in farming techniques, so that by the time they got to Palestine, they would already have the knowledge and the skills to jump right in. These training programs were soon replicated all over Europe. Tens of thousands of Jews participated. These are the kinds of people who settled under the kibbutzim, which grew significantly in this time period. If I had more time, I would talk more about that because it's really interesting stuff. Who doesn't love talking about the kibbutz? But the influx of the third Aliyah had two major impacts. It pissed off the Arabs, as we saw last week, and it ensured that the demographic of the Yishuv tilted strongly to the left, socialist and idealistic, David Ben-Gurion's kind of people. And this third wave ended around 1923, and these determined lefty farmers were followed in the fourth Aliyah by the disillusioned blue-collar workers of Poland, who also came in the tens of thousands and settled not on the kibbutzim or the farms, but in the towns and the cities like Tel Aviv and Haifa. The third Aliyah built Palestine's agricultural economy, and the fourth built its urban one, these were the workers joining Ben-Gurion's Histadrut labor union in huge numbers, which set out to create jobs for Jews, 
build a social safety net, invest in infrastructure, and above all, fold these Jews into a unified Zionist socialist system. And it worked. By the end of the decade, at least 75% of Jewish workers were in the Histadrut, which by then functioned as something like a government. Indeed, the Jews had made remarkable progress in the 1920s, slowly and steadily, and with the occasional setback. Winston Churchill took note of all this as early as 1922. He noted a range of accomplishments. A quarter of Jews were farmers and farm laborers. There was an elected assembly for domestic concerns, and an elected chief rabbinate for religious ones. Hebrew was the vernacular with a vibrant press. The yeshuv had a distinctive intellectual life and considerable activity. Churchill, no doubt, also took note of the progress in the next few years. Fifty new neighborhoods were built in Jerusalem, most but not all of them Jewish. Tel Aviv and Haifa were becoming major cities. An airport was built outside Tel Aviv, at the same place where you landed when you went to Israel. Agriculture also matured and a robust export market was created for citrus, especially the famous Jaffa Orange. Some of Israel's most famous poets and writers were getting their start at this time, as the Yishuv finally had the means to invest in cultural life and the arts and entertainment. The Haganah, the defense, was growing its membership and improving its skills, slowly starting to resemble the beginnings of an army. In short, Churchill noticed, the Jewish community has national characteristics. Wow, so much to say about the 1920s. It's really hard passing up so many great stories, but, you know, I gotta move on. So, even though tens of thousands of Jews were coming into Palestine during the 1920s, tens of thousands were also leaving. So the net annual influx of new Jews was fairly modest. This kept the lid on Arab anger. And so too did rising economic prosperity for Jews and Arabs alike, especially in and around the larger cities. The burgeoning Jewish population meant more economic opportunity. And even though there was discrimination in favor of Jewish workers over Arabs, there was still enough to go around, and more and more Arabs also began moving to Palestine from other parts of the Arab world. The eight years after the riots of 1920 and 1921 saw relative peace, quiet, and cooperation between Arabs and Jews, and the Arab-Israeli conflict seemed faded into the background. But it was still there, lurking, simmering, waiting for the right moment to boil over into full-scale violence. And that moment came during the hot summer of 1929. Talk to you next time.